Hello, and welcome to the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com. It is 7 p.m. on November 19th. Cannot believe we have made it this far in the semester. Can you believe it, Nick? I cannot. I cannot believe it. It's going by really fast. I can't believe it's also taken this long that um, I'm on the show now. Yeah, it, it's it's really been one of those things I've been... We've talked about this before for, what is it, like a year now? Because <laughs> um, we started bringing on guests about a year ago, and I talked to you about this and just never, ever reached out and followed up. But here you I'm are. I'm joking. I'm joking, of course. I'm <laughs> I'm honored to be a part of it. This is one of my favorite shows to listen to on Blaze, for sure. Ah, uh, we're... <laughs> as well as the podcast. Yes. Wow, we love our fans. We do. Uh, glad to have you, Nick. Uh, yeah, for those of you who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself really briefly before we get started? Sure. I'm Nick Sanchez. Um, I'm the news director here at uh, Blaze. So the show, um, I'm really proud to have it uh, in my department. Um, that's huge. So uh, yeah, I'm a senior here um, at ASU at the Cronkite School, and uh, I've been doing Blaze forever now. Um, it feels like just the other day, I was a I was a young like underclassman doing uh doing blaze and now now I'm old. So but yeah, thank you thank you for having me on. I'm very excited. Yeah, and you're not that old. I mean I, I think we're like the same age. So. Yeah, weren't you just poking fun at me for like having a creak in my bones? <laughs> like okay, well you age. were saying that. You were saying that. Yeah. You're saying how you're feeling uh twenty one coming up, so you're feeling yeah. a little old. I think you're Feeling Medicaid. like I need a cushion air, cushion I, chair. <laughs> I think your uh, I think your Medicare card is in the mail currently. <laughs> I'm waiting on it. You know, I do I do need that extra little assistance there. Flu shots are coming up. Yeah, flu shots are coming up. Uh, we do just a PSA. You can get your flu shot free with most insurance at most pharmacies, and if you're an ASU student, health services does do likewise. Yeah, definitely make that appointment. It's worth it. Definitely. Well, anyways, we got to get started. Uh, I'm Gideon Karaoke. I'm John Brown. I'm Ethan Pelland. <laughs> I'm Kirsten Dorman. And I'm Nick Sanchez. And, oh, dang, have we got a jam-packed show for you, so let's just get right along. <clears throat> As per usual, I'll be starting us off tonight. Woo! So, there was a lot of talk. <clears throat> Excuse me, my goodness. Um, <clears throat> yeah, really starting out the show a little... <laughs> Horse throat. Well, this uh, is why we're telling people yeah, to get their why. flu shots. It's cold and flu season. I do not have a cold. It's just something. I, I was literally eating a cookie like oh yeah, less than five minutes before I came on air. So. I'm sorry. I'm definitely the culprit behind that. <laughs> Seasonal baking is a thing. It sure is. I love it. Um, <clears throat> anywho, there was a lot of talk in some corners last month about a phenomenon. Uh, one that's been building for a while. It's been dubbed Striketober as it referred to the increasing number and scale of strikes that happened in the month of October. To give you a sense of the scale, just in October and kind of into, no the momentum's kind of continued into November too. 10,000 John Deere workers were on strike in October, which I should note, by the way, the striking workers ratified a new contract earlier this week, which did end the strike. 1,400 Kellogg workers went on strike. And California healthcare provider Kaiser Permanente is facing a huge sympathy strike. As a, so that started because about 600 engineers have been on strike for more than two months, 
and are now being joined on the picket lines by 40,000 other Kaiser employees on Thursday and earlier today on Friday. That Kaiser one comes just after they narrowly dodged a huge pharmacist strike earlier this week. This is not at all a comprehensive list, just to tell you. Anyhow, this week I'm talking about the spirit of Striketober hitting Arizona. This is uh, one of my classic twofer stories because they're a little shorter. Uh, I'm specifically talking about the impending strike at Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix and the Starbucks Workers Union from Buffalo, New York, organizing in Mesa. At Sky Harbor, the concession workers employed by HMS Host, which is the concession operator there, voted on Thursday to authorize a strike according to the Arizona Republic. This was not a close call uh, at, at the vote, where 97% of the workers who voted voted yes. These workers, unionized by Unite Here Local 11, cited low wages, understaffing, a lack of respect from their employer, and wanting improvements in their health care benefits, retirement plans, and protections for their tips as why they voted in favor. HMS host, on their part, says that this is just inconveniencing passengers at the height of the holiday season. And it should be noted that it, this is not being done in any particular hurry, as the union has been negotiating a new contract with HMS host since 2017. Whoa. Yeah, it's 2021 for those of you, and just ending 2021 now for those of you who are keeping track. Right. So what would that be? That's definitely at least one go around in high school. Oh, yeah. So it, it's 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 definitely they've been dragging their feet on this. Been one. a minute. <laughs> so they've agreed on most things, both on the Unite Here's part and HMS Host. The only provision left in contention with HMS Host are pensions. Uh, and the workers are claiming that they want a better pension plan, an actual proper pension plan. It seems the Republic article isn't necessarily clear about this, but the workers do make a comment. One of them says that uh, she doesn't want to leave her 401k up to the stock market. So it seems like they do. They feel like the pension plan that's being proposed by HMS host is insufficient. In our other story, Starbucks Worker United Workers United, sorry, announced on Twitter that a union will be forming at a Mesa location on Power and Baseline. Ma Starbucks Workers United is a union formed by Starbucks workers, or as Starbucks likes to call them, partners, in Buffalo, New York. As of the moment, three stores in Buffalo are voting to join this union officially, uh, do a union authorization vote from the National Labor Relations Board, which is something we have talked about before on this show. You can go back and listen to the episode where I talked about the Amazon union vote for more on how that works. But they uh, it should be noted that, yeah, this uh, particular set of elections in Buffalo only involve about 100 employees. And no, there is no current Starbucks store in the United States that is <clears throat> unionized. And yeah, the reasons why they're citing, why they're forming a union in Buffalo, and we'll get back to the Arizona one in a, in a moment, is saying that they want a way to address issues like uh, short, uh, short schedules that don't give, give enough hours and wages that don't reward seniority and security to speak up when confronted with hazards like harassment from customers. So... Starbucks, of course, is not particularly handling this well, so to speak. They're doing the good old union busting, 
there's some comments that the CEO said a few, uh, Howard Schultz said a, few, a while ago that I'm just not going to quote because they're really that bad. Wow, really? Yeah, he may, I'm just going to tell you the, the I'm not going to actually read it on air because I really think it's just that disgusting. Uh, he basically made a Holocaust comparison, like one of the worst I've heard in my life. And I've heard oh, my fair no. share of really bad Holocaust comparisons, which, by the way, all of them are bad. Yeah, yes. that is it's exactly like, what it's hard to say. It's really hard to stand out as extra bad in that way. Um, and to hear that th they've accomplished that, it, it kind of gives a good scope of the situation, I think. Yeah, Star so Starbucks management is handling this very badly, even by the already insane standards of corporate America wanting to bust a union. If you want to <laughs> learn a little more on union busting specifically, and you're new to this, I do recommend John Oliver... Um, from last week tonight on HBO did a really good segment on union busting this past Sunday. Watch it on YouTube. It's hilarious and very informative, like any good John Oliver segment. Um, so anyways, back to the Arizona part of this. So um, I'm, I'm actually going to be, and oh, and it should be noted, everything I just read about the Buffalo Union is coming from Time Magazine. Um, but anyways, going to the Arizona announcement from Twitter... So they're basically saying that, and I'm going to read a little clip of uh, this much longer letter. So saying, in, in why they're forming a union, saying that we believe there, that there can be no true partnership without power sharing and accountability. We are organizing a union because we believe this is the best way to contribute meaningfully to our partnership with the company and ensure that both our voices are heard and that when we are heard, we have equal power to affect change and get things done. Uh, yeah, end quote there. Um, anyways, I do think it is interesting that this, you know, kind of national story actually winds up having an Arizona angle. Um, they, and it should be noted, the Arizona store where this is, uh, did file for an NLRB election, an actual union election. So this is a thing that is going to happen. So what is happening in Buffalo currently is going to be happening here in our own backyard. Uh, so that's a little bit of uh, Arizona getting a taste of Striketober and the spirit of unionization. Uh, so I'll open up to the panel. What are your thoughts? My first question is, will this hype die down? It's obviously not Striketober anymore. What have we seen since? in terms of like staying power it does not seem like this is calming down uh i it's i mean the kellogg strike continues uh i mean the iatse which uh the the union that represents most stagehands um but theatrical productions and in hollywood right nearly went on a huge strike in hollywood and they only and by the way it only did not happen because they have a really convoluted system for elections. Actually, a majority of their membership voted to go on strike. Right. But... And if I'm not mistaken, we talked about that either on here or hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically. Right. So they did vote to go on strike. Um, and when they did it, uh, the kind of authorization of the contract after it was settled, before they actually went on strike... There's a really convoluted system they have within, and I barely understand it mm -hmm. um, from what I was seeing, where basically 
a majority of the membership of IATSC wanted to do the strike in the end, but it was a like one the way they weigh the votes meant like one local and I think in like New Mexico basically voted against it and it oh my <laughs> yeah it caused it yeah it, it basically they're having a real they're having a time out there <laughs> yeah they're having a time um, out there so they are not do, going they did not go on strike that was averted and their contract was ratified through a really confusing procedure I barely understand right but I think we also talked about and I think this is important um, to consider just in general as well like these unions have a bit more bargaining power on the tail of the harshest parts of the pandemic now, especially in the entertainment industry. Um, and so I think, do you, I wonder, do you think that that has anything to do with this? Because consumer spending is actually up way more than expected right now. Um, and so it really is not in these corporations' best interests to have a bunch of their workers go on strike at a time like this, in my opinion, at least. Forever, really, but especially not now. Right, and the reason why people feel so confident uh, is the economic data. You you take a look at it. We're in a tight labor market right now. Mm -hmm. Employers want people, and and the, the, you know, it's the, there's so many positions open, and they're not getting enough applicants, because apparently... A whole bunch of companies are learning. Apparently, doing a wages race to the bottom apparently does not make people w- want to work for you when there's so many other better options. Absolutely. No, it's because they're lazy. Oh, yeah. No, they need to work. <laughs> these you know, these yeah, people need to work. Why. They need to learn. Employer, like Small businesses need to learn the dignity of work. Right. I've heard it said like... You know, you call people lazy for wanting to stay home and collect stimulus checks, but if they can stay home and collect stimulus checks and get by much better than they did when they were working two jobs and busting their butt, I don't know. I mean, of course they would want to do the the former. They're also not receiving stimulus checks anymore. Exactly. Well, right. We and cut off the- extended unemployment. Like it, it. So it's like the nonsense of people aren't working because we're giving them stimulus checks yeah. and extended employment. And that's not even true anymore. That's and even nonsense. when it was, it was, in my opinion, a very silly argument because if I could get enough money to live, some might call it a living wage, um, without breaking my back working... Yeah, I'd really like to do that as opposed to choosing to do labor that I'm not being sufficiently compensated for. That doesn't make any sense. And it's funny to me because the same people who would argue that, oh, you're lazy for not wanting to work in a scenario like this would also say to people who are not being fairly compensated for their work in a lot of these lower or I forget what the word is it for, but like a lower entry job, if that makes sense, like a lower level entry job. Yeah. Um, they would argue that these people simply need to get better at negotiating and learn how to <laughs> advocate for themselves in the workplace. Oh. Which is that not what they're doing? Yeah. Okay. No. This is this is self advocacy. This, this joining to get in your buddies and joining a union is self advocacy. Mm-hmm. It just. You know, it's if, just in a way that doesn't benefit the people who you work for. It benefits you. But in in an individualist society that or culture that we live in rather, isn't 
shouldn't that be considered a good thing? Uh, it should, ideally, but of course, the employers aren't going to see that as valuable because well, it makes what they, too much sense. Which is kind of crazy. I, I was looking at a the little study that was done, and I forgot where it's from. So if I'm citing this wrongly, I, I apologize to our listeners. <laughs> um, but I was seeing a little study, and I forgot where from. It was talking about the kind of comparison between FedEx and UPS in uh, these days. Mm. So FedEx and UPS, if those of you, I'm sure everyone knows, are both logistics companies, delivery. Yeah. Um, and they're the two big ones in the U.S. Uh, FedEx is not a unionized, does not have a unionized workforce. UPS does. UPS is unionized through and through. All their delivery drivers, mm-hmm. all the people involved with that stuff are Teamsters members. Pretty comparable labor. Yeah, pretty comparable labor, but one is labor, but one is unionized, one isn't. Um, and UPS has had a much better time attracting workers and keeping them. Mm-hmm. While FedEx is struggling. Something about being a nice place to work that tends to get people to apply. And what I've heard, I've known, like, I don't know, I don't directly know people who've worked for UPS, but, you know, people I know know people who've worked for UPS, uh-huh. and I've heard nothing but good things. It's, like, in terms of, like, it's a very good work environment. Yeah, and John, you looked like you had something to say, too. Yes, I wanted to bring up a point that, sorry, Kenan, were you going to say something? No, 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 I'm I'm done. Okay. (laughs) No, Kristen, I was going to say, let's be fair. The people who are saying that some people are, like, lazy and this, that, are, like, people who live, like, in their parents' basement or just play (laughs) video games all day. I mean, I I had to add that in. Let's be real. Every time, that makes me so mad. When people say that, I was like, really? Like, you're going to tell me that? Like, let's let's tone it down. Let, oh, yeah. Let, let's be real. Like, it's literally people who are probably, like, in their room or playing video games all day. I mean, that's one group of people, John. But there was, like, you literally had, like, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce t- saying mm-hmm. that to lawmakers. And those people aren't people that live in their room. They're people that live off of other people's labor. Um, <laughs> that, it's, too. It's that incredibly too. frustrating uh, just in general because, if, in my opinion, if we're going to have these discussions at all, we may, be, we may as well be straightforward and we may as well be honest about what we're talking about. And to me, those kinds of arguments and rebuttals, not only are they incredibly dishonest and dismissive, but they're also incredibly... Uh, unproductive. And to me, that says very clearly that those people who uh, make those arguments, whether they be the Chamber of Commerce or just some rando layman, it says to me that you don't care about other people. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, what what is our economy and way of life in the United States but pursuing self-interest? And I say, mm-hmm. I say, in my personal view, workers should pursue their self-interest Get you and your buddies, join a union. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't understand what all the loyalty is to these people who are against that. The the people who are profiting, uh, the corporations who are profiting off of these people's labor in an unjust, unfair way. Why are we as a public so loyal to them? What do we owe them? I mean, unfortunately. Nothing. Um, I mean, yeah, we do owe them nothing. But unfortunately, you know, it's like. Life in this country is precarious for so many people. I mean, you... And this is part of why. We don't typically make a living wage. No, we don't. And there's no job security anywhere unless you unless you got a really good job. Which so, is so sad. Yeah. It, it, it's really bad. And this is why stuff like this makes me, makes my heart warm to see that people are taking charge. This is, this is, 
you know, I, I, I always like to think change is not made in the halls of power with those gra with those annoying weirdos uh, like Senator Cinema <laughs> and Senator what's the name from Rando State that we just heard of five weeks ago for the first time. No, that's not where change actually happens. Change happens when people get together and say, we're through. When ordinary people join hands and say, we're done and take charge. It's so iconic that you called uh, Senator Cinema. Uh, what is it, a weirdo? Yes, and I stand by that. She is. I mean, she is objectively just a weird person. This has nothing to do with my politics, by the way. She is just extremely weird. I just thought Which that was hilarious. Just slash people <laughs> that, from the jean, green party. that jean shirt outfit. Uh, <laughs> that was atrocious. Kirsten, uh, Kirsten, Kirsten Cinema. I did this. I did this last show. Yes. <laughs> the last show I was on, I did this. I'm sorry. Um... Kirsten Cinema is only a Democrat in her clothing. She is a Republican mm. and all sorts of names. I mean, you have to admit, she is a Republican at this point. She's I embarrassing. Mean, <laughs> that's what she is. Yeah, I feel like that's a better way of putting it, but I am running so over. Yeah, uh, we can talk you know. so much more about Striketober, and maybe we will talk more about labor organizing on this show, because I think it's an interesting thing. Uh, and I, I guess I can say, speaking for myself here, all the best to the work to the members of Unite Here Local 11 and Starbucks Workers United, both in Buffalo and in Mesa. So, yep. with that, I'm going to hand it off to Ethan to do his story. Oh, John, I see you want me to go. No, I, I'm, oh. having, I'm, I'm having mix it up. Terminal brain fog here. You're John. okay. You're okay, Gideon. Um, my story this week is going to be about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict slash a little bit about the judge, which is interesting. Um, judge Bruce Schroeder is a 75-year-old no-nonsense judge, as you can see by the trial, and he is the longest-serving circuit judge in Wisconsin. He was the first appointed in 1983 by a Democratic governor and had continuously won elections since. He has often run unopposed, which is kind of concerning. Um, he has a well-earned repu well reputation of being no-nonsense, because if you see from his other cases, you can also see that he's no-nonsense. Um, but there has been multiple problems of him at the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, let's give an example. On one day, Schroeder's cell phone rang with a God Bless the USA by Lee Greenwood. That ringtone went off in court. Um... Yeah, kind of concerning. And some viewers also really cringed as Schroeder struggled to discuss Apple's pinch-to-zoom feature and image enlargement algorithms after defense lawyers objected to a drone video that has been enlarged and enhanced by the state crime lab for prosecutors. And then, um, also during the trial, Schroeder did draw some criticism for a joke some found racist about a lunch delay in court. Um, I'm not going to get into that, but there was controversy over that. Um, he's a very interesting man. I've watched, I haven't watched all of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, but I've watched most of it to see Bruce Schroeder's outburst. And um, you could just, I mean, I was like thinking there was going to be a mistrial and this, that, and I was like, this judge, um, I mean, you could just clearly see the bias that this judge had, and you could just tell when he was lashing out the prosecutors, 
And some people are calling him out, especially um, those who particularly have different political views of Schroeder, um, pointing to several decisions in the defense's favor and admonishment of the lead prosecutor in a heated moment. Um, he actually excused the jury and then raised his voice to tell the prosecutor, Thomas Binger in this case, that his questions had threatened the undercut to undercut Rittenhouse's right to remain silent. Ay ay ay. Um and also <laughs> also Schroeder also drew criticism because when this was before the trial began, he ruled that prosecutors could not refer to those shot by Rittenhouse as victims. It's a loaded word. Let me give you a quote. A loaded, loaded word. He said, while allowing defense lawyers to refer to them as arsonist and looters, end quote. Zone quotes. Hmm. As long as they could prove those people had taken part in those activities. So, Bruce Schroeder, let's tie it back in. Bruce Schroeder is a very interesting person, to say the least. I don't know what's going to happen with him, if they're going to try and take him to the state bar, if something will happen in the future. Um, Bruce Schroeder is a very controversial person and um, I think has been for his decisions for a very long time. Um, this is a opinion shared by many, if I'm being completely honest. Um, I think a lot of people think the same. Um, just even watching this whole trial is... I don't know, just a lot to, just a lot. That's, you know, I had this problem last time I talked about this case when Bruce Schroeder first had his outburst and we were talking about that. I couldn't find the words to finish everything because it's so astonishing, like this whole case. Um, so that's what I have. Um, if anyone else has any Bruce Schroeder commentary that they have gotten through the week, I don't know. Very controversial. Well, uh, panel, any thoughts? I do about the trial in general and also about Schroeder. But, um, I mean, to be honest, several of Schroeder's outbursts are probably justified. I mean, the uh, prosecution, I the way I saw it best described was the prosecution was actually the best uh, person in Rittenhouse's defense. They were like the number one asset to Rittenhouse's acquittal was how bad the prosecution was. You can't like the the, the reason one of the one of the primary outbursts that Schroeder had was because the pro, because was because the chief prosecutor was attempting to in a sense ask Rittenhouse why he wasn't answer, why he wasn't why he was trying to remain silent, which you can't do because that is a like constitutional right. It's like the first thing you learn in like when you want to become a prosecutor is you can't ask a witness why aren't you answering like why aren't you why are you trying to invoke your right to remain silent? Mm -hmm. Like you can't do that. Um, but also, I just the prosecution mishandled the entire case. They just like they have they they have the chief witness go on the stand and say that, and clearly if he's telling the truth. But I mean, if he knew that, then he shouldn't have had him as his chief witness because he would have talked with them. He know he he would have known what Rosenbaum was going to say. Or that's not. He would have known what the chief witness was going to say, which is that Rittenhouse didn't shoot him until he pulled out a handgun and aimed it at him. But if he knew he was going to say that, then he probably shouldn't have had this this guy as the entire linchpin of the case. It's like just so many times that the prosecution made just such serious errors that 
anyone who got who just got out of law school probably would not have made. Um, now the thing is, this is a bad this is a bad outcome. I mean the the it's a bad outcome and it's going to set a really bad precedent. But just basically, if you look at what the current legal statutes are on self defense, Rittenhouse was within the legal definition right now was defending himself. So legalistically, he should have been acquitted. But the thing is, is that now what we're not considering is that he put himself in the situation. He doesn't need to go there. He brings the firearm. Well, he doesn't bring the firearm. He receives the firearm when he should not have possession of that firearm and takes it into this this sort of situation. We all know what was what was happening in Kenosha. That he knew what was happening in Kenosha. He said two weeks beforehand in a, in a video that he saw people, you know, what he thought was looting and said, I wish I had an AR so I could have shot them. So he was clearly going into the situation. You know, maybe it wasn't that he was thinking, I'm going to go in, I'm just going to start shooting everyone. But he went in, he has this sort of like complex of, I'm going to go in, I'm going to be a hero, I'm going to defend sort of the businesses, I'm going to be like a protector. And he's going in with a firearm. He's not going in to like render aid and protect. He's going in to try to get himself into a situation where he can then be justified in shooting someone. And this is just sort of like my concern here is this is essentially setting like a Zimmerman precedent where now there's a sort of way where you can get away with something. It's, it's not as if you can just now go and just start shooting people to protest. But what you can do is go in, take a firearm and just sort of get yourself into a confrontation and then, oh, ow, I'm defending myself. And also the insane thing in the self-defense, I'm sorry, I just, I, I got a rant. And this is especially based on John Oliver episode. You having a firearm makes it to where you have like this like special legal status almost. Because if I have a firearm and, you know, I'm in a confrontation and someone tries to disarm me, now I'm trying to, now I can shoot them. Even though I'm the one who might have instigated the, the situation. It's just like having the firearm is an accelerant. And now we're going to have more people with firearms coming to protest on both sides. Because I, I know generally people don't, it, like stereotypically we don't really think that, you know, liberals or leftists like guns, but a lot of leftists do like guns. A lot of leftists do have guns. Mm -hmm. And now that, you know, this is sort of the precedent, now more people are going to have firearms, that means that the other side is going to have more firearms. And having a lot of firearms that are already highly tense situation, you just have to look, just look up Robert Evans, and you can see lots and lots of videos in Portland of people getting into, into physical confrontations constantly at, at protests in Portland and protests all over the country. And if we have more firearms... It's not necessarily going to mean that just everyone's going to start shooting, but a firearm is much more dangerous and potentially dangerous than, than a fist fight. Uh, like, I, I just, I, I think we're sort of not realizing the broader implications right now of what this could mean, which is a lot more street violence and uh, protests and violence that is potentially a lot more catastrophic. Yeah, you're, I think you're right, Ethan. Uh, I'm not going to go much into this because Kirsten and I had this discussion on hypospeak, on uh, hypothetically speaking, I'm using the internal name for it. Yes, um, <laughs> but, but you should definitely listen. It's It'll be on your every podcasting platform, your favorite one, um, and you should go give that a listen because we did have a really in-depth discussion about what this looks like contextually in the in the criminal justice system here in the u.s yeah let's just I, i'm just gonna give share the one point i think that's most relevant to the conversation we're having here in terms of that this unfortunately was to be expected yes yes 
Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just agreeing with you. I'm sorry. I was just audibly agreeing with you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I have to say. This was to be expected. I mean, I don't know why. It was. Anybody in their right... Like, I say this with all... With love, actually. With love. I want people to understand that this useless system is not going to save us. Mm. Yeah. Uh, no, this is... And this is exactly how the system is supposed to work. Listen, I'm not one for hypotheticals. Hence but why we have man, you on the Friday show. But, yes. <laughs> That's why we don't have you on hypothetically right. speaking. Um, but man, I can't help but think, because as you were kind of talking about, Ethan, listen, Kyle Rittenhouse, this kid, he was looking for action. That's what it was. Yeah. That It's yeah. as simple as that. And to be able to use, to turn, to put himself in a position where self-defense, he can argue that, and, and that's cool. I can't help but think, but man, if that kid looked like me, if that kid looked like you, Kirsten, or like you, Gideon. Mm -hmm. Especially uh, if he looked like Gideon. I don't think I don't think, yeah. I don't think that self-defense would have held up in court. Oh, no, not at all. I don't all. think no it would have. The white privilege isn't just an idea or a concept or a theory. There are actual specific white privileges that people have in this country. Mm. And the idea and the argument of self-defense is one of them. And this case in this case in this ruling didn't didn't just prove didn't prove that because we knew that. We just reinforced it. Mm. My partner brought this up earlier today when we talked about the case because we had just both seen the news uh, while we were on the phone. And I think it's um, really poignant that he brought up, you know, he kept thinking back to Trayvon Martin, who was around the same age as Kyle in this instance, and how in court Trayvon was basically demonized um and he was unarmed yep. and yet the same thing kind of happened here where the person with the weapon the person who did kill someone was made out to be kind of a victim in that situation and the self-defense argument was used and he said that he personally found a lot of parallels between the two cases and thought how sad it is that it was so easy to demonize a teenager on his walk home and how easy it was to basically put a halo around this other person, this other teenager who, at the end of the day, did go out and shoot people to death. He crossed state lines to do it, too. Yeah. Kyle Rittenhouse mm. literally lives 20 minutes away from me. He literally crossed state lines go do this uh, and what's the major difference between kyle and trayvon it just again, besides the fact that one was armed and one wasn't well being armed is also a big component of it honestly like well, i really think our sy system is. provides such a huge advantage to people who are armed in the situation and he's white he's a white 17 year old and i think it says a lot about the fact that and I mentioned this on Monday, statistically, it's been tracked. There's been controls done for socioeconomic factors. There is no arguing against the fact that the criminal justice system favors in sentencing, in conviction rates, in just about any way you can imagine, favors white people, gives them much more grace and like it's been said several times already here and on Monday, um, and I'm sure in many other places and times, that's exactly how the system is meant to work. And that's why you have judges like this one like that are Shutter. still there, that, yeah. that mm -hmm. run unopposed. And 
Listen, will there be anything that comes of this on on his end? Will he face any blowback? No, probably not. That that dude is going to have his job for as long as he wants his job. Because in this country, unfortunately, like you brought up, an unarmed black man in this country, an unarmed minority, but especially an unarmed black man, is more dangerous than an armed white man. In the eyes of the court. In the eyes of the court and the justice system. Air quotes Mm -hmm. around that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know... All I'll say, I guess, to kind of end my own thoughts on this is if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I apologize for taking a lot of time on this. I I think it's really important. I have a lot more to say, but obviously (laughs) I cannot. I couldn't even get into the specifics of what I really wanted to say. Um, we could have done the whole episode on this, honestly. Oh, I have no, Kirsten. I have a lot. I I have a lot. <laughs> oh yeah. So let me let me tell you. Maybe it's time for a break, Gideon. Yeah, we'll take a really quick like thirty second break, and we'll be back on the the review squared on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com. Please stay tuned. I'm not turned. My mic wasn't turned on for a hot minute. Oh, oh no. <laughs> LMAO. Um, welcome <laughs> uh, to uh, the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com. Once again, we're coming back from a really quick break. I'm Gideon Karyuki. I'm John Brown. I'm Ethan Pelland. I'm Kirsten Dorman. And I'm Nick Sanchez. And yes, glad to have Nick on tonight. Uh, it seems Ethan is withholding his segment this week. Uh, which we are bummed. We love you. No. For time. For time. But for time. For I'm time. sorry, Ethan. Oh, it's all right. Yeah, we will hear Ethan's in two weeks when we come back, uh, because it will still probably be relevant then. Yeah, well, maybe oh, it's it the open government's still, you know, <laughs> around. <laughs> are you sure? We'll see. We will see. Yeah, okay. That, yeah, it's not a great situation uh, if you've been paying attention to that. So we're going to hand it off to Kirsten to continue off the show. Sure. Thank you so much. Um, I think we've had a lot of really interesting conversations so far tonight. And I thought, why don't we just continue um, <laughs> as, as is the nature of the show, right? So I think one of the things that we're taught a lot here at the Cronkite School is to write eye-grabbing, ear-grabbing headlines. And one really infamous eye-grabbing headline is, this CEO is out for blood. I mean, wow. What? I, I don't know. I thought something was really cool about that. And this is the now infamous um, headline for a Fortune article in which the writer paints a picture of a 19-year-old sophomore at Stanford sitting down in the office of her chemical engineering professor and just saying, let's start a company. So way back in 2003, the student in question, Elizabeth Holmes, struck her professor Channing Robertson as different in his words. She made a name for herself as a bit of a tech icon because she struck the whole world really in the same way. She was a young female CEO with an unusually deep voice who styled herself after Apple's Steve Jobs and it made frequent appearances in this like simple like but kind of iconic black turtleneck. And as the New York Times puts it really succinctly, I think, um, 
it says, you know, she was lauded as one of the youngest female self-made billionaires in an industry typically dominated by older men. About a year and a half later, a follow-up was published in Fortune that starts a lot differently than that first one. At the top of the article, the writer simply says, fairly high up in my story, there is a whopping false statement. And speaking of things that the Cronkite School teaches us, that's a big no-no. That's an automatic E on your assignment, whatever that happens to be. So Elizabeth Holmes has been the widespread subject of fascination because of how she essentially fooled everyone, allegedly, um, not just that writer, into believing that her company, Theranos, could perform a variety of complex blood tests to detect several ailments and diseases, just like a traditional blood draw, you know, the kind where a needle gets put into the crook of your arm and a number of vials then go get filled up. So the vials from the finger prick that Theranos boasted, um, it would produce more than a thousand of, by the way, um, that would be a step up from its existing production or what it claimed to be its existing production of 200 of these famously tiny little vials. So the company offered more than 240 tests ranging from cholesterol to cancer at the time of a now infamous Wall Street Journal investigation pieces publication and it was reported that investors had put over $400 million into the company, which would eventually be reported and raised to $945 million, according to the New York Times. And its estimated value was at roughly $9 billion as a company overall. So we're talking big bucks here. Anyways, according to reporting by John Carew, one former senior employee at Theranos said he... Uh, that the company used the device for only 15 tests in December of 2014. So I'm obviously no <laughs> mathematician. I'm a journalist. But I would say that that's a pretty big difference between the 200 they claimed to produce and the 1,000 that they were promising for the future. And in 2016, federal regulators ended up barring homes from owning and operating a lab in one specific location. And so they had to switch their operations to here in Arizona, actually, as well as pre prohibiting them, meaning Theranos, from taking any more Medicare or Medicaid patients or taking their payments. Um, reportedly, Theranos had earned governmental scrutiny and side-eye due to questions about the effectiveness of its technology and the way the company operated. It took until 2018 for Theranos to officially call it quits, though, amid some pretty serious allegations of fraud. Since its shutdown, there have been a number of pieces published about the rise and fall of both Theranos and Holmes herself, including books, movies, and documentaries. And now, renewed attention has been centered on the case because Holmes is on trial over one main question, as the Times put it. Did she intentionally mislead doctors, patients, and investors as she sought investments and partnerships? Just this week, the prosecution has rested its case after weeks of laying out the argument that Holmes did, in fact, deceive investigator, or investors, rather, among many others, like the patients with very real conditions who all came to Theranos, because she knew, as they allege, that the tests were not accurate and that the company had really relied on third-party commercial machines and not its own technology, which was a big selling point for them, that they relied on this revolutionary technology. Um, in more recent news, 
Holmes was called to the stand in her criminal trial today, which is really a surprising move, um, which this comes after 11 weeks of witnesses from the prosecution and then essentially the first person that the defense puts on the stand um, is Holmes. They haven't indicated whether or not she would testify reportedly, but she did. And she's 37 now. She had a lot to say, and it seemed like her disposition on the stand was fairly like calm and cheery. Really, really odd. And just in general, this is a really still strange story, I think is the best way to put it. There's it feels like there's never a point where you know what's going on. Um, you might think you do. And then there's another little detail that gets you and surprises you. Um, this trial has played out inside a courtroom that's been presided by, um, presided over by a judge whose name is Edward J. Davila, and they are a judge for the uh, District Court of the Northern District of California. And there has been no live broadcast of the proceedings. We're getting everything from those hardworking journalists in the courtroom on the floor. Shout out to them. They're working hard. And yeah, that's really where we have to leave it for now. The trial in general is uh, it's scheduled to kind of wrap up by the 10th of next month. So we'll see. <laughs> Who knows if they'll actually finish up by then, but no matter what, I think it'll be something to keep an eye on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I will say on Holmes, you know, I feel like it's important to really bring, because you kind of skirted over this, but I do want to at least mention there's an Arizona angle to this story. Oh, yeah. A really huge one, because we were one of the states that got duped by Elizabeth Holmes. And I'm going to read you a quote. I'm going to read you a quote <laughs> from a statewide do. elected official. Some people are born to be leaders. Some people are born to be business leaders. Elizabeth Holmes is both of those. <laughs> oh no. Wow. That aged like milk. Aged like milk. That quote is On from a hot Governor Arizona Day. Yeah. That quote is from Governor Doug Ducey <gasps> himself. Embarrassing. He, he said this standing at a podium with Elizabeth Holmes, not all that far away, at a Theranos office that was in Scottsdale at the time. <laughs> this was during, this was on, in 2015. I'm, I'm pulling this information from the Phoenix New Times. Um, this was after he passed a bill uh, through the legislature, and this was a bipartisan-supported bill, so Ducey wasn't the only person that was duped by this. Uh, neither was the oh, Republican man. Party. Um, a bipartisan bill passed uh, HB2645, um, that would allow anybody to order a laboratory test without the approval of a doctor. That was heavily lobbied by Theranos. And they ha opened locations inside 40 Walgreens. That's right. Stores yeah. across Metro Phoenix. It's, yeah, so th that's the Arizona angle of that. Like, people legitimately got hurt by this. Yeah, I mean, they, like I said, they were offering a lot of tests for a really wide range of conditions. Some as serious as cancer. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. There's it, a lot of harm there. Let me tell you, Elizabeth. I was like <laughs> obsessed with like the Hulu documentary about her. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's on Hulu, but it was really interesting. Like it tells her about her whole life, her time at Stanford, um, kind of like you were mentioning, Kirsten, um, her Theranos office, where 
I heard like she wouldn't like talk to her employees or something like that. And she was like, you know, she'd always wear all black. She was known for being kind of quirky. Yeah. And her voice. I heard something about her voice, like her voice being different. So people have kind of picked apart her her voice and her appearance in the way that I mean, not not to sound as if I'm coming to her defense, but I think a lot of women kind of face this in the professional world where people will critique your the way you look, the way you sit, the way you act in little ways. And for her, <laughs> this was her voice. Yeah. Although I do I do admit it's kind of out of the ordinary because she pitches her voice down right, by right. a lot. So it's it's definitely something. But I think in interest of getting our last story in, I'm going to call it here so that our lovely guest can... Uh, Give us the scoop. What's going on, Nick? Well, I appreciate it. This next story is not at all as important as any of the three or four, including Ethan's (laughs) story, that that have been uh, put out there tonight. But I appreciate it. Again, I appreciate uh, coming on the show. Um, So the Oakland Athletics, um, they are looking for a new home. Um, Just a quick rundown. The baseball team has been, uh, shall we say, had tensious negotiations, uh, tension-filled negotiations with the city of Oakland for a new stadium, for a new ballpark. Well, they're using the classic, well, we'll move to Las Vegas as leverage. For years now, in the sports world, it's kind of a running joke. Las Vegas is the leverage city um, when teams want money from cities and want you know other kinds of uh, consolations in order to get a new stadium, new ballpark, arena, what have you. Um, Well, the Oakland A's today, it was reported by the Las Vegas Review Journal first, have put down an offer um, on a plot of land in Las Vegas. So it looks like leverage might be turning into action um, with the Oakland A's. We don't know where this plot of land is or for how much money they're offering, but we know there has been an offer put down. As I mentioned, they've been haggling kind of with the city of Oakland for a while now. Um, They specifically are asking for a waterfront ballpark, um, a plot of land that's that's right on the water. Um, According to uh, multiple sources, the city and the A's are approximately $500 million apart in negotiations. Um, And that's, of course, in public funding. That's the big that's the big uh, sticking point. Las Vegas has the distinction of have, of contributing the most public money to a stadium project ever in United States history. Wait, what? $750 million in public funding for the Las Vegas Raiders stadium. Oh my. It's the wow. largest it's the it's the largest amount it's the largest pot ever for a city funding a, a sports stadium. Now, it's different because Las Vegas has a little bit of a different distinction that is being funded through a hotel room tax on the Strip, which you may think, okay, great, the tourists pay for it. That's something personally, someone from there that I've thought. The problem with it is, is that the hotel room taxes also contribute to schools, to public transit, that kind of stuff. So when the bill gets too big, or a safe hotel room sales dip, then the money indirectly, but also directly starts coming out of other important areas, like public schools, which in Nevada, not known for its educational system. So this kind of gets into what I wanted to bring about kind of to 
to this panel here and to the show is is kind of a is kind of a discussion about like about public funding for stadiums um infamously terrible ideas um for for cities to to fork over big portions um of money for for stadiums that are frankly these billionaires that own these teams can build themselves they don't want to though because well that's less money in their pocket and mm. how did i become a billionaire because i value money how do i stay a billionaire is because i keep that money in my pocket um just some examples of how public funding can devastate cities and communities and counties um st louis when the rams left um have been have have been footing um by the time when the rams left so the rams left st louis for los angeles um just a couple years ago as of the year that the rams left st louis the city still had a hundred million dollars left to pay off which over time with interest comes out to a lot more the miami marlins maybe one of the worst ones footed 80 percent of the bill for what is now marlins park 80 percent of the bill 600 million dollars that over the course of this 40 year whether it's a payment plan whatever is projected to turn into as high as two billion dollars over 40 years hmm. oh my for the city of miami and as of two days ago just to just to just to further the point that uh this isn't really just a leverage play anymore. It looks like the city of Oakland has moved on, moved on almost, and it looks like they're kind of tapped out. Um, they've come to not so much an agreement, so much as a as an understanding, at least, with a group, a private group, I believe, to develop the Coliseum, which is the current baseball uh, stadium that the A's play in, um, into a cultural hub that'll include affordable housing, that'll include uh, oh. black-owned sports teams. Uh, all that kind of stuff. Basically repurpose the area. For a um, good thing. Yeah. For a good thing. So it wow. looks like the city of Oakland is kind of is kind of saying bye. Because again, they're not what the city of Oakland is doing, and and they're kind of over a barrel in a way. Because mm -hmm. Oakland has lost the Raiders already. Um, the Golden State Warriors moved across the bay, across the bridge to San Francisco in their new arena. So the A's are trying to take advantage of that and say well listen you've already lost two sports teams here we can't we're the lone one left the lone i should say out of the big four if you will sports um now trying to squeeze more money out of the oakland a's and it's just it's it's something that it's it's slimy and it's gross and it's low of these billionaires that just squeeze as much public money out of these cities as they can because they want shiny new stadiums, but they can leave at any point, really, yeah, or, or whenever it. the lease ends. You said it. Because <laughs> with, with this Raiders stadium, it's a 20-year lease. And the Raiders' history is moving around Oakland, Los Angeles, back to Oakland, now in Las Vegas. They're going to leave after that 20-year lease. So what happens when that, pay, when that payment's not done for the city? Oh, yeah. They keep paying for a stadium that'll, what, have some concerts? <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, and you know I'll uh, help pay for it. <laughs> no, and you're right. Like we really have to quickly wrap this up, but I do want to say really quickly, like there's a local example of a city that nearly went to actual bankruptcy. That is the city of Glendale. The really long and short story of what they did 
is instead of because most bonds are like for arena bonds and like bonds for other things are backed by property taxes yeah glendale decided what if we back it by sales taxes in the year of our lord 2006 we all know what followed two years later. What happened in 2008? I heard there was something that happened something about happened. two years later. Yeah, I think it had to do with the economy or something. Really? I yeah. don't know. Probably not important. Anyway. Anyways, the the economy crashed and Glendale was left with a really spanking huge bill for what is now the Gila River Arena where the Coyotes are not going to play starting next season. Uh-oh. <laughs> and that was an agreement between them. Glendale basically wanted them gone. Anyways, that is to say... Glendale nearly went full-on Detroit, like actual municipal bankruptcy over Oof. this. Uh, yeah, not sports arena deals, not great. There's a lot more to say on there, but we do have to go. I really want to thank you, Nick, for coming on today. I wish we could have had a longer discussion. No, thank you again for having me. I'm sorry. I again with my story, I feel like my SJ is showing. So oh no, we're glad. I, listen, I appreciate uh, you guys having me on the show. Like I said, this is one of uh, my favorite shows on Blaze. So Aww. thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Uh, yes, Thanks before you do, I, I do want to ask. I always I sometimes forget to ask some guests this. Uh, do you have anything you want to promote? Your own socials, any causes? Uh... Um, sure. Yeah, you can follow me. Uh, my Twitter is what is my Twitter. <laughs> it is uh at nick sanchez underscore 19 nick sanchez is taken um <laughs> i edit a podcast well i should say with blaze radio uh listen to the sanchez wednesdays 11 and noon here yes. on blaze radio yeah. i've got dj shift here on blaze radio also wednesdays 3 30 to 4 um and check out believe in the run if you listening out there if you like running if you like hearing people talk about running that aren't yourself um there's a podcast for that called the drop podcast i edit it each week um so go listen to that too thanks again for having me on i appreciate you guys killer and you can find us on twitter at the review underscore squared just review just review sorry review. just review <laughs> underscore squared clearly i don't know what i'm talking about but in case you miss us before you hear from us again next friday in two weeks two, <gasps> two weeks. weeks yeah we're not we're not airing next friday uh happy thanksgiving everybody yeah in case you miss us and you need something to listen to or scroll through Yes, and also you can find us wherever you get podcasts. We're always posting there. You'll, yeah, we'll talk more about that in two weeks. We'll miss you. Miss you until then. Have a great one. I've been Gideon Karaoke. This is the Review Squared. Have a great week. The song at the start of the episode is dedicated to the press by Betty Davis. Music you hear is by springtime.